Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. We are your hosts, Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Welcome, or as they would say in early modern English, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. On this episode of Ipitain Baroque Podcast, Gemma and I are going to be discussing The Crown, the TV show, and the first three seasons. We decided to make the split. Actually, we were pondering how we're going to split talking about The Crown. But at the end, we decided to do it right down the middle, kind of as pre-Diana and the Diana years, but also... It just seemed natural. So today we're going to be talking about the first half. So that's the first installment, the first two seasons, and then the third season. So Gemma, how much do we like The Crown? I'm a big fan. A very big fan. I am so excited for the new season. You sound so genuine. No, I, I know actually, why does I sound really uh, sarcastic? But no, I am. I'm a, a really big fan of it. I think, think it could have went two ways. I think it could have went because they are real people who are still alive. Well, they were when at the start. It could have went both ways. It could have went to it could have pandered to them too much and been, Oh how wonderful are they? They're so perfect. Look at the royal family, aren't they amazing? Or it could have just tried to annihilate them and I think it's gave like a, a good balanced perspective of what the the royal family are like. I know it's not historically accurate in every single way, but again we'll we'll go into that later. I, I think it's a good balance. I think it's um it's definitely groundbreaking in many ways because unlike because you have two shows to compare it to and mm. from what I know anyway you can compare it to the Windsors which takes the Mickey out of them and makes them into a slightly alternate sort of reality soap opera with the sort of the mentality inserting a lot of middle class into it even though mm. the only one who was middle class in the whole royal family was uh, the late queen and the other show, which is very little known, is the, what was it called? The Queen, The Life of a Monarch. It's the it's the one I watched when the first, the, the trailer came out for The Crown back in 2016. And I think it was something like 4th of November or something. And I was just counting the days because it was just so incredibly, it's just mind-blowing everything. The trailer was just, you know to die for literally and i kind of you know you know those um usual like list of things to watch if you can't wait for this thing to come out and yeah. i found on amazon the dvd for this live action sort of fiction tv show which is uh, the queen life of a monarch and it's five episodes each of which is about i'm guessing about 40 minutes long it's actually what other TV shows fail to do. It's a mix of uh, documentary and live action drama, but they do it incredibly seamlessly and they have good historians. They have, they, they really blend it. Unlike your, what was it? Sex, Blood and Crown, mm. where it's yeah. a little bit patchy. It's still working, but it's patchy. Mm. Or the one that we hated, The Lazars, that was yeah. A fail on every single count. So The Life of a Monarch was actually doing it really well. And I wish I could be a lot more well known. And you have even famous actors in it, which is, you know, <laughs> and this is the first time I learned about the whole Peter Peter Townsend thing as well. So you have the five uh, episodes and each of which is based on a kind of different problem in a different decade of the Queen's life. Because at that point, I think it came out of something like twenty. 10 so it was five decades of rain or so and the queen basically it had new cast 
every single episode. And the problems they were dealing with were the real problems. You had the Peter Townsend problem. You had the, you know, uh, Diana down the line and everything. Samantha Bond is even in it. You have uh, Amelia Fox, Katie McGrath, you know, all, all, all those names. But the problem in the show was the fact that it didn't have the budget. And obviously, I just know this by looking at it because mm. he, they couldn't quite pull off the fact that it's the Queen, it's the royal family, it is the uh, Buckingham Palace, etc. And sometimes Prince Philip, I couldn't tell if it was Prince Philip or the butler, you know, like that scene with Maggie Smith. <laughs> oh, oh, could you get me a drink? Oh, I thought you were the butler. Literally, I couldn't tell sometimes if it was Prince Philip or... Yeah, the butler or footman or something, mm. because I don't think there was much budget for, for those things to be differentiated. But the crown, the groundbreaking thing about it is that they have the money to actually pull it off. Because mm. if you're making a show like that, you need to have very deep pockets, not just for mm. research, which they claim that they do, but also to make it seem like it. Yeah. And 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 in that perspective, they really win. So, they yeah, the crown kind of balances those things really well and they mm. still do even though it started off as as a kind of not ancient history but sort of history far enough into the past that you yeah. can sort of speculate about their personal lives their sex lives their political views and everything yeah this is also why it was good i think to separate it by the halves as we've done so the first three seasons and the latter three seasons because the first three seasons happened before you or i were born mm. So it's literally history for us. It's something that yeah. our parents had to witness, our grandparents and everything. But season four to six. So you and I were born somewhere in season four, even though we're not, <laughs> we're unacknowledged. <laughs> I, was, I was born two weeks after Harry. Literally, two, we were the same age. But we love you so much more. <laughs> and you choose your spouses so much better. I mean, I did. I... <laughs> <laughs> and you name your kids. So much better. <laughs> Just, you know, yeah. normal, normal names. Um, yeah, so exactly. So season four is sort of where you and I come in, yeah. so to speak, <laughs> unacknowledged. <laughs> and we witness things in season five and definitely mm. season six is happening when you and I were both already adults. Mm. So for us, it's kind of too recent. And obviously, I can't imagine what it was like for Peter Morgan to write it because based on the interviews, yeah, he kind of feels as closer it was getting to today, it yeah. was getting, he was getting kind of more and more nervous or something. He was getting more and more uncomfortable. And I get it because you have a lot more bias. You have, because it's literally happening with us. We we we, we were witnesses to, to those events in some capacity. Mm. So yeah, I think... Especially, yeah, with season one, I was waiting for it to come out. Thema Flatman and I watched it. We binged it. I didn't even have a Netflix account at the time. We watched it on his account. Um, we watched it in something like one day. And the thing, the other thing I love about The Crown is that they were, I don't know if it was the first show, but it was definitely one of the first shows that was putting out the whole season at the same time. Mm, yeah. And you then could actually binge it at mm. the time when it was new as opposed to waiting for things to accumulate for the because I know so many people who say oh, I'm going to watch the show when the whole season comes out or when the, when the show is finished even I say yeah but if you don't watch it now they're going to finish it much sooner because you know they don't have the support of the fans it's weird because obviously we were the generation where you didn't have a choice and now Netflix has ruined my life to be honest because 
Uh, it really is. <laughs> I do not. You know, we know this because remember we were talking about um, the Sex and the City. What is it? I can always forget what it's called now. When that second season came out, remember you were watching it and I'm like, I'm not watching it. It's not finished. I will watch it at the very end. Then I will binge it. <laughs> exactly, because binging, they introduced or helped introduce binging yeah. as a as a choice. Mm. Because you want to have the option of watching it together. You don't want yeah. to. Exactly. Because you and I know what it's like. And back in the no. day, we did not have that. We, we we only could watch it episode by mm. episode every week. And we didn't even have an option to watch them back. No. Unless it came out on the TV again. We're that old. So unless you taped it, which at some point mm-hmm. was the option, sometimes wasn't. You know, it depends if you had free tapes and all that. I mean, you had to use your VCR and all that. I had two yeah. VCRs, which I would take apart and then put back together. And then I, yeah, I kind of mastered the, the, <laughs> that art pretty early on. I taped so much off the TV as soon as I learned how to do it. If you wanted to binge something, you had to wait until like three years later when it was on a box set. <laughs> yeah, or that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. If it came out on a box set, because... Yeah, exactly. Where I lived, you wouldn't have too many that would come out. No, there wasn't much. Yeah, films, yes. And your, you know, Lord of the Rings or whatever would come Mm -hmm. on the same box, the same DVD, whatever. But normal TV shows, just bog standard TV shows, unless they were really special, they they didn't even come out on VHS or something. So Netflix helped introduce yes. the, the binging of straight away when it's fresh. The biggest question that people ask themselves when the new seasons of The Crown came out, and then, of course, Bridgerton, etc., that if you're watching it all in the same go, or if you're kind of divvying it up to, to have the element of surprise or whatever. But mm-hmm. I always, every single season of The Crown that came out since, including uh, then later Bridgerton's, I watched as soon as I could because mm. I had waited long enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is this is this I, I waited. This is this is my reward. <laughs> this is this is what I'm going to enjoy. Yeah, because I think my only major criticism about the Crown is there's just not enough bloody episodes in a season. I want yes. more. I want more. However, I can I can counter argument that counter argue the fact that some seasons. Peter Morgan's design for the show. So he came up with it as he was working on the audience. And obviously there's a, there was a series of things that he, he did. The Queen, about mm-hmm. uh, the late Queen's dealing with Diana's death. Then there was the audience, the place, also starring Helen Mirren, because she plays all the queens as long as she can. <laughs> all the queens. Even though, no, actually she rejected the audience role at first, and then she rejected the crown, but then she went back on her rejection of the audience uh, role and she accepted and she played on Broadway and in, uh, in London, sorry, London first, then on Broadway. And then by the time the crown came came up, she said, no, enough of the, uh, enough of the queening. Yeah. But the audience was dealing, and I saw the play actually when it was doing its seconds ra- second rounds with Chris and Scott Thomas. So I, I saw that and I even caught Stephen Doldry in the theatre, the director. He also would go and direct the crown and I made him sign my ticket. And I was just, my life this this is my life. I am happy now. <laughs> Stephen Daldry signed my ticket because I loved him from the hours when he did the hours. So yeah, he did the audience. Peter Morgan did the audience. And it's about the Queen's conversations, the audiences with her prime ministers. 
And then he decided to do a TV show basically that's focused on the Queen's relationship, the late Queen's relationship with Winston Churchill, because we know mm-hmm. him as the, the victor of World War II and all that. And we know her as kind of this uh, old lady. And he wanted to kind of swap around those images and play mm-hmm. on the fact that it's actually she used to be young and he used to be old. So let's, yeah. you know, uh, but then he decided that he needed to have a lot more to say before that. So it expanded into a film and then he decided just to do a TV show. And then they decided to do a TV show that lasts, you know, that spans six decades. And I think that it's a brilliant design. But then I think that at some point he probably thought, okay, but what am I actually going to say beyond what I wanted to say? Because mm. then when Winston Churchill is bye-bye, then, you know, there has to be more meat to it. Mm. Which is why sometimes I think season two feels a little bit hollow in places. It's not as juicy as season one. Mm. And then you can say that about some of them because you said uh, not enough episodes. But I think probably for some of them, there probably wouldn't be. Because if he were to redo yeah. season one without episode limitations, I don't know. My guess would be you could do 20 episodes on season one because there's just so much going on. On season two, probably five would have been enough. So it was Lenin who said, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. So I think this could be applicable because, like I said, I think this is why season two, and we're going to get to season two, but it feels not as juicy. I'm just going to go with that metaphor because it still has things it wants to say, but it feels like a sort of... Not a parody, VHS copy (laughs) of season one, because the season one was just so bright and sparkly and every episode had a theme and almost its own kind of, not color palette, but its own film within a film. Mm. And season two was great, but not as great Mm. as season one. I I agree with you, but I also would say that in some seasons, there could have been even fewer episodes where nothing happened. (laughs) Keep moving. (laughs) What were your first uh, memories and impressions when you found out about it, when you saw it? I was quite interested to watch it because I've never really been interested in the Windsors, to be honest. Uh, It's just not really my niche. Like, I prefer the other ones. I don't care. I think I don't care because... Breaks my heart. (laughs) Well, I think I don't care because I don't feel the need to... I have lived with them my whole bloody life, do you know what I mean? They're never out in the newspapers. You're aware of the Queen... From birth when you live in this country. It's not their fault, though. No, it's not. I'm not, I'm not blaming them. And I think quite a lot of British people probably feel like this. We feel like we already know them more as their you know kind of thing. Yeah. So I wasn't really that interested in like pursuing them from a history point of view, as in further reading or whatever. But I thought when the TV show came out, I thought, I'll give it a go. It might be interesting. And, and it, it was, to be fair. I did learn to like the Queen a little bit more. <laughs> but I didn't like her. It's just a didn't really feel in towards her. I just knew her from like the paper. Do you know what I mean? Well, she comes to Hollywood once a year. I didn't even know she did that. So I was not interested in the royal lives whatsoever. I like the dead royals more. I'm going to be honest. I like the dead royals. The there are more of them. <laughs> there are more of them. And they don't affect my life. So I can, I can like them or loathe them. <laughs> I love the Windsors. The show the Windsors. The show the Windsors. I love that. That was brilliant. I yeah. think if I really like that in real life, I'd probably like them more. <laughs> that's that, but that's that's a beautiful thing. They did a very genius thing of eliminating the people they couldn't talk about and focusing on because you, you don't have uh, Lady Diana not once, never. Mm. Obviously, you know 
that Camilla is not the mother of his children, but it is never mentioned and you know it. And they kind of very do a very nice thing of sort of sidestepping that. The the late queen and the late Duke of Edinburgh are also not in it. Obviously, he's mentioned as the granddad mm-hmm. who swears and says, don't nick my stuff and all that. It's funny, but they're not characters on the show. So they kind of, they did a brilliant thing of just sidestepping that, removing them from the narrative. Yeah. Only as people who they speak of, but not show. The creators did a genius thing of making that into a comedy. And you get away with more. You get away with more. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. they kind of took the kernel of truth mm-hmm. and then put the comedy spin on it. So it's mm-hmm. kind of not insulting because yes, it is funny. I will be the first person to laugh at it, but also I am aware that this is not exactly how it happened, but it's it's funny the way they did it. The, the level of ridiculous that the show will go to, to get the laughs, but also you're immediately aware that this is not reality. Yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, the good thing about the Windsors, like you said, they did. It's that way where comedy's funny when it's true. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, you have to have some truth to make it really funny. Yeah, that's what I was saying. That they, they did do their research, mm-hmm. but I love the fact that they didn't just kind of put the research and every single thing they found. They took some things yeah. that would be kind of that you could make a comedy out of. You have some storylines which are absolutely in incredibly funny and unreal and yeah. you know that this is yeah. this is not it. Like a whole Pippa thing, Pippa and Harry. And well that was funny because after that wedding there was so much press speculation that they would get together. I know they'd never did and Pippa's well married and happily married and So is he apparently. Do, you, do have you heard anything about I was that? just about to say <laughs> so is Harry quiet people that there. So yeah, it was it was funny because people had made that speculation, do you know what I mean? It, again it wasn't true, but it was true for some people in their head, obviously. Uh, so that's what made it that funny. Because it had the speculation behind it. I genuinely think they would have made a great couple, but that's just me. <laughs> I think so. And it's just so upsetting when in the show they're kind of torn apart by these narrative strands. And you know, they're, they're kind of forced yeah. on them because they can't actually get them together. It's funny enough and it's not insulting. Yeah. So it's it's no. definitely not insulting because you can definitely see that this is this is not they don't need to put this is not reality, this is made for entertainment mm. because we know that it is. The beauty, the the beauty of the Windsors. I mean, season three took a took a dive. I'm not gonna lie. It's the one season that I can't quite binge mm-hmm. as much as I can seasons one, two, and coronation. I hope they do more, although I don't know how they're gonna with without Hayden Gwynn, mm. RIP. Even a while I forgot what Camilla looked like. I thought that was her. Every time I actually seen Queen Camilla, I'm like, oh, you don't look like her. Because she's not real. Queen Camilla is real, but... Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> not I mean... Not, yeah. not the one. Not the one in the Wenzels. Yeah. It's just the wig and everything, and it's just yeah. so deliciously evil, and she's yeah. just so... And she knows that, and she's playing it to that effect for the, yeah. for the, for the yeah. gallery. It's, yeah. it's amazing. My favorite storyline with her is when she she's trying to start a Parker Bowles dynasty <laughs> and tries to get pregnant. And the fact that it's not even sort of the Shand dynasty because her maiden name yeah. is Shand. Yeah. She wants to do a Parker Bowles dynasty, even though mm-hmm. her husband's a Windsor and she wants to have children with him. So you kind of go, right, because you think that would be a whole other dynasty tree. Okay. Yeah. So she does have a Parker Bowles dynasty, but you know, 
That's a different story. Exactly. And they're completely, <laughs> her actual kids are completely obliterated because they're not on yeah. the show and, they, and no. the show pretends that they don't exist mm. because they say, oh, you, if you want to express your maternal instincts, we can get you, you know, an adopted child. He kind of got what she has two already (laughs) sort of you know and yeah yeah they're trying to adopt a child as well it's just we could have had you beheaded you you have to be happy that it's not the 1990s anymore (laughs) so anyway yeah the winter is great but the crown (laughs) the crown yes the crown is the the serious version and one thing i will add i think you and i discussed this several times and i cannot stop admiring the fact that richard golding the actor who plays Prince Harry in The Windsors, in the except for season three, when he was in The Crown. <laughs> so in The Windsors, he's all very kind of buffoon. He's very silly, very funny. He can't read or write when the show mm-hmm. starts, which is one of my favorite lines when he says, I use my best crayons. It's... <laughs> something I want to uh, not tattoo on me but literally I want it on my doormat I want it on some t-shirts or on mugs because this is a brilliant brilliant quote and he also played Prince Harry in a more serious way in the play Charles III and in subsequent TV film Mm. I haven't watched it fully I watched it some of it but I absolutely loved what I saw and I need to finish it at some point it's also written kind of in a slightly Shakespearean blank verse so he played Prince Harry as a funny silly buffoon he played him in a very different format as a serious kind of in a serious role and it's funny because that Charles III play and subsequent TV film ended up with Harry leaving the royal family to be with an actress of uh, who was mixed race mm. and this was done written sort of a good I don't know five years or whatever before it actually happened. So you kind of <laughs> go, was Harry just taking lessons from this? Real uh, Harry? Yeah, it's like um, the South Park and the Simpsons. Have you seen like the like online where they, they predict the future in the episodes and then something happens and you're like, um, Simpsons or South Park, they had an episode on this. That's what with, like. We just thought that the Jetsons predicted the future with Zoom calls and everything, <laughs> yeah. but apparently, you know, it's all true. I absolutely admire that actor because he was kind of he was savvy enough to get cast in both because I don't think that it's something that happens a lot. If you've been this character in this show, you're very unlikely to get cast as the same character with a very different take on it in another show because there would have been, I don't know, some sort of conflict of interest or something. But he was savvy enough to get. It's hard for the viewer to disassociate from the the other Exactly. Uh, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. this is a master, master stroke. He must have a fantastic agent. But also, he was in the Crown, which is why he couldn't be in season three of yeah. the Windsors. And he played what was it, the aide to Prince Charles, hmm. who apparently in real life didn't have any problems getting along with Diana. But he doesn't hmm. get along with her in the show when he berates her for bringing a child onto the plane. Yep. And as a person who's flown with babies on the planes. I tend to agree with him. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with him either. I don't Thank like you. Jordan on planes. It's very interesting how he's he's very serious and he's a very serious role and he's doing it so brilliantly. And then he's also the one who tells Prince Charles that Diana had a late night caller. Mm. And also we know that this late night caller may or may not be the actual biological father of Harry. So it's it's an interesting <laughs> narrative circle. Yeah, it's a very yeah. kind of meta meta circle. And you also yeah. in when when I saw that scene on the crown for the first time in season four, I thought there's that scene in the Windsors when he says, "Well, 
uh, at least there's never been doubts about my paternity. Right. No, there had no, absolutely <laughs> not. But yeah, so that's a kind of take on the Windsors and their genius casting of Richard Golding. I think we should just uh, put it out there that if you're going to make any show about the Windsors, Richard has to be in it. Yes, exactly. It's like um, Helen Mirren and the Queens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> The Crown. And I know that some people were very disappointed when the last season is now broken in two, but you and I spoke about it. We didn't feel that strong about it. No. Also because it's two different timelines. Mm -hmm. If the first half is kind of finishing the narrative of Diana and the second one is sort of 10 years later or something and they're dealing with William's sort of maturing so mm. the future of the crown I don't think it's a bad thing plus like I said so if you're binging the whole thing at once mm -hmm. and this way you can't do that so it kind of gives you more of a sense of occasion yeah I think I think it's quite good because when you've got people like me and you who have to binge it it's kind of a it's making us be in that time period for a while and just like, sit in it and then wait a wee bit and then we'll get into the next bit so I, I think it's quite a good idea to be yeah. honest yeah. It's it's giving it a sense of occasion is it because yeah. this is the last one. We're not gonna get yeah. any more. And yes, they talk about the prequels, but as the show, as this one piece of work literally, uh, where people get together and do this, this is gonna be it. Because yeah. we don't know who's gonna be running. The next thing we may get it, we may not get it, you know, things get cancelled all the time. So yeah, I think it's a good move. And I don't think it's done to get more money because you're already paying the subscription. So they're, <laughs> it's not like people can resubscribe or whatever. No. So then we move on to historical accuracy. Again, we have to go back to bias. I think it's historically accurate to the point where up until you get the division or the controversy, because I was very happy with season one. Because they kind of took um, the different points of view of uh, characters and everything. By the mm. time they got to season two and they had that horrible episode where they literally accused uh, the Duke of Windsor, the late Duke of Windsor, of sympath sympathizing with the Nazis and all that. I thought, okay, so you've made a decision, you decided to go this way as opposed to trying to see things from his point of view because according to his biographies, this is not what happened. Kind of because people think it was on the crown and this applies to the whole show, literally, no matter how many spoiler alerts or non-history alerts you put at the front, because it was on the crown, it must be true. I mean, it was on Nazi sympathizing. The fact that he went and... There's footage of him with Hitler. He wanted back in power. He wasn't happy with the fact that he wasn't getting enough of the British government. And he was quite happy for... I think it's it's a weird subject when you talk about it. I think what we don't remember now is that Nazis weren't Nazis back in the day. Exactly. It sounded so, different. Although he was a Nazi sympathiser, you don't know how much he knew about their politics. You don't know how much he knew about their agenda. At the very start, quite a lot of British people, quite a lot of German people, quite a lot of worldwide people were like, is he a bad person? Is he not a bad person? It's like we, we talked about before, um, it's women speeding fighters and our man's terrorists, and they didn't know at the time. Nobody knew at the time. So it's hard to really judge who was a Nazi just because they maybe agreed with some things they were saying. Because, and again, this is what we all forget is he didn't come out at the very start and go, by the way, I want to kill all the Jewish people. It's not as if that was on his poster. 
So, and I'm sure a lot of German soldiers who were fighting had no idea what was happening back in Germany with the concentration camps. They didn't have Twitter, they didn't have, you know, social media the way we have right now with certain wars and things. You don't know what's going on. And even now, you don't know what's going on because of biased media and biased reports and lying reports that are happening now. So you can't even imagine back then. So it, it really is hard... I mean, if he came out after the war had ended and was still sympathetic, I you're a Nazi. They did a very half-assed attempt into trying to show it from his point of view because he, I think he did say at some point in there that, yeah, this wasn't, we didn't know what was going to happen or whatever. So they didn't mm. try to uh, steer that in the middle. They just mm. kind of, the narrative and the show in general just mm. pushed it to one side, okay, and then it's done. So... All the work they've done on uh, sort of not rehabilitating his name, but kind of trying to show him as a human and all that in season one with the episode Windsor, which was one of my favorite Mm. crown episodes because it says so much with that name and it means so much and including the Duke of Windsor, i.e. him. And then at the end when he's crying, playing bagpipes, you know, in his uh, Paris home, you can really see, yeah, so his love for the crowd and his love for this woman and everything. You can see him being, you know, like the Notre Dame torn apart. Yeah. And you you really, really feel for Remember, we were talking about human moments. Mm-hmm. So this is was his very much human moment and you can relate to that. But in season two, they just went and absolutely killed it with that attempted sort of, not rehabilitation, but sort of, yeah, attempting to, well, Okay, rehabilitation. So mm. I kind of have that against the show that they didn't try to. And especially at the end, they really kind of nailed the coffin with those photographs of Wallace Simpson smiling at Hitler and, you know, doing the salute or whatever. Mm. And you kind of go, yes, but you took a stance and now the guy probably could never be rehabilitated now because in the crown, it goes this way. And it's going to be very difficult to sort of undo that and show him from a different perspective unless you do a musical like Wicked or something. Which, you know, the, the Elphaba's fine. So, you know, the Duke of Windsor may also be. But his story, mm. yeah, that's a whole other episode for a very different yeah, well, day. I think that's, that is the problem. But, I think the problem is that when you show somebody's bad moments, you need the good moments or you need the whole story, like... You need the whole context to understand the person and the person's motives and everything else. Obviously, the show's not about the Duke of Windsor at the end of the day. So it's different when you know the whole story behind him. Yeah, a very complex life. Yeah, a very we're complex gonna, character. Yeah, we're going to talk about that on a different episode. But <laughs> yeah. what I'm just going to say is, yeah, in season one, you have the episode called Windsor episode three. Mm. And I love everything about it. And his image is really, I, th- I think it's that episode. And then mm. he also appears later on in Smoke and Mirrors at the coronation episode. Yeah. And yeah, with the two episodes together, you, I think he appears maybe it's in some other ones, but definitely these two. And you really, really feel for him. And you, yeah, his rehabilitation was going somewhere. But then in season two, they killed it but then again in season three which is why i love season three yeah he again is a little bit brought back into spotlight and rehabilitated sorry for using Mm. reusing that word but he's brought back into spotlight he is aligned with prince charles which happened in Mm. real life as well so he Mm. he meets with him and in the show they also did this whole thing of i just replaced him and the episode dangling man 
is phenomenal. I think it was a two-parter with the one where he's brought back, um, his body's brought back and everything. Mm. And Derek Jacobi is playing that role fantastically well. You cry when he meets with Elizabeth and she's sort of, well, thank you for giving up the throne because it gave me this and that and all that. So I love their reunion, which is historically accurate. They did have it. We obviously don't yeah. know what they said, but yeah. it, it did happen. So... Yeah, I love I love that storyline, the fact that I didn't forget it, but I do mind that he was given this kind of default sympathies without explaining them further. Mm. Because like I said, it's it's about the crown. That's what Peter Morgan always says in all the interviews, that it has to be staying with the crown and everyone else's peripheral. And then the further mm. they are from the crown, the more peripheral they get. I think a lot of it, though, is quite a a big stance against the monarchy in this country is their German roots. And to have somebody so close to the crown so recently being attached to Nazis is a big thing. It just yeah. gives more ammunition for anti-monarchy feeling in the country. I know Peter Morgan is fighting those rumours as well that the, the show has a Republican sympathies. Mm. And I do see it because mm. some episodes you, you kind of watch and you go... Okay, they could have written this so many ways, but they kind of hint at certain things about Charles or whatever as well. And yes, the, the, the Duke of Windsor storyline and you go, the crown isn't going anywhere, but mm. why are you pushing this story? Yeah, so no, um, I agree. It's it's a little harmful to the monarchy and it's supposed to be, not pro-monarchy, but it's supposed to... But see, but I think that's what makes it good. Yeah. I think I think the fact that it's not too biased and it's not too pro-monarchy, like you need that. At the end of the day, the crown is part of Britain and the British people are the ones that keep the fucking crown going. So to have both sides shown, I think it's actually quite useful. Like, because mm. you, you might say that it's, it's like pro-Republican or whatever, but when it comes to Mount Batten's death, I mean, you, you, you're behind him, to be honest, which is weird. So there's a lot of sympathy around his death in the crown, yeah. which is definitely not pro-Republican. Yeah, 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 no, 100%. You're not I, I, I love that. I love the with the Princess Alice when they bring mm. her back in season three. Yeah, because and... you know, she gets a, like a, a faint mention at the coronation. No, the wedding, sorry, the wedding. Yes, she's there, Yeah, but... A different actress, you don't, yeah, uh, you barely see her. She's no, a Hun, referred she's to as a Hun nun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not very sympathetic, but no. Then she gets her own proper spotlight in mm -hmm. season three, mm. which is, yeah, that's, this is why kind of I love it because season three, and I think for you, it's the same. It's my favorite season out Absolutely. of all of them. And I don't think season six is going to change that, although, mm. you know, famous last words. Yeah, we'll see. I love. The cast, and we're going to talk about the cast as well of seasons one and two, the first mm. installment. They're brilliant, but season three it just has a different energy, and yeah. it's a different music. Which, by the way, for some reason lasted until all the way into season five. It's the same motifs musically, and by the way, guys, this is not cute because that should have ended in season four, <laughs> but that's beside the point. But yeah, season three kind of breathes in new life and it's the season with the storylines we know the least, but it's still mm. full of those storylines. And again, the same as in season one, every episode is its own different film. 
Mm-hmm. Even the ones that are two-parters, they're still kind of small films, two-parter films, <laughs> franchise of films, but they're still very juicy with narrative, with almost Shakespearean dilemmas and everything. And of course, it brings to the fore Wales, which as far as the Britain goes, it Britain and Scotland, but Scotland, I think, gets some kind of spotlight. They have that model, so. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then in season three, you have the huge shout out to Wales twice. Mm-hmm. First with Aberfan, which I knew yeah. nothing about mm-hmm. when I first watched the show. And this is the one episode I probably skip every time I binge it through because it's just, it, it's it, it's like Butterfamilias at the end of season two. It's its own film that mm. is very difficult to watch and it almost as if it doesn't it doesn't fit with the the, the narrative of the season it's its own thing Mm. and it's better to be kind of watched separately almost Mm -hmm. because it's just too serious it's too good almost so Aberfan uh the disaster in Aberfan takes central stage the queen is barely in 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 the episode and Olivia Mm. Coleman is trying to portray an unemotional person as best she can which we know isn't true and I met her she was lovely then you have the episode where Charles is studying in Aberystwyth for uh, a term and you have Carnarvon front and center. And the thing that makes me literally my soul sing and makes me go tingly everywhere is the fact that Carnarvon was shot at Carnarvon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I remember I wrote so many mini blog posts about it and all that on the blog, on the Instagram, whatever. And I was just, I I could not contain my excitement. I'd actually visited Carnarvon before they shot there uh, so that I could still, you know, go and not have it full of tourists. I absolutely love that fact because usually castles are played by other castles most of the time. So the tower is never the tower. As we've discussed with the Spanish princess, they decided to use Warwick Castle as Edinburgh. And Balmoral is never Balmoral. Exactly, never because you can't shoot at Balmoral. Exactly. Kensington Palace uh, was shot in Hatfield House for Mm. the favourites and many things are shot in Hatfield House. And then for Young Victoria, Kensington was Ham House. So castles are never playing themselves and in this case you could do it and oh my god yes please it's a fantastic fantastic fact maybe a little bit too nerdy for the general public but for me it's just yeah but I, i just realized that castles are like the unsung heroes the actors that never get that oscar (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it did it so well. It and the so most well. difficult thing is to play itself. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's just the fact that it was filmed not just where the real first English speaking Prince of Wales, and you and I both have mm. that book, was born, Edward II. So then you, you have the whole drama of the Welsh. The, the conquest of Wales by Edward I. All of that is played out in there in these ruins of a castle, which, by the way, was never completed because the whole point of it was building it, but not actually living in it mm. and all that. And the fact that they crowned, not crowned, but invested the future Edward VIII, they invested him as Prince of Wales in the, what was it, 1911, 1913 or something, specifically to connect Britain to its medieval roots Mm. So they did, of course, the actual Charles there, and then they filmed the investiture in the same place as well. This is the chef's kiss of filming locations. And it's a beautiful, beautiful medieval castle. It's a beautiful medieval location to find yourself in. So yeah, it's season season three. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> 
And of course, in season three, also you have Camilla. So this is the thing. You and I spoke about this many times, that the real love story in sort of Charles's life and everything is Camilla. And Camilla is an incredibly underrated person. Mm-hmm. And she did not deserve half the things that, mm-hmm. not half, the, n- none of the things that were said about her. So it's it's beautiful to see this being portrayed on screen in the very... Mm-hmm tasteful, respectful, gentle way. And it's, yeah, and I love, the reason why I'm a big fan of Josh O'Connor is because he played Prince Charles in that season, in that way. With all the Shakespeare combined as well, you have so much Shakespeare tied around it, even though they had to go with Richard II as opposed to other plays that real Prince Charles had been in. But it's just beautiful and epic altogether. And yes, Camilla is portrayed as his sort of one true love. And then you just, yes, isn't the forest coming? I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) Obviously, he's heartbroken by the end of Mm. season three and you feel so deeply for him. And mm. you just, you know what's what's going to happen. But you, mm. like I said, it's also kind of like a time capsule that happened before the events you and I saw on TV, in newspapers and play really out. Fun. I was obviously too young to remember all the Camilla stuff in real life. I've only known Diana in the papers and like my mum and Graham was obsessed with Diana. I love Diana. She could do no wrong. So I was around all that kind of a talk in fact, my mum my even went as far as having a Diana haircut. I didn't um, I didn't really know that much about... Camilla just came out of nowhere. And I, to be honest, I didn't really care. You heard the stories and you knew they kind of had something before. And that's fine. I don't know their personal life. But to actually see what they went through, it's different. Do you know what I mean? It hits differently. You, you start to feel more empathy for them before... Of by the way, of everybody involved, that's the thing. Like just because you like Camilla, well, we like Camilla. It did. I don't have any hatred towards Diana. This is not yeah. a team. Team Camilla, yeah. Diana. You can be for both people. The two exactly. of them. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you well, can respect them and be a fan of them 100%. in different ways for different, different things. Ways. So that, yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. Diana had her good parts and her bad parts. But Camilla had her good parts and her bad parts. King Charles has his good parts and his bad parts. But all three of them were in a really shitty situation. Like a really shitty situation. And all three of them, in some way or another, are victims. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. Hundred percent. They're all victims of the system, which now, because they've paid such a high price for it, has changed. But also got us yep. Megan. So I don't know. Well, but even even if you you don't like Megan or you do like Megan, Miss Harry's choice. Do you know what I mean? That's the difference. So if anything happens to that marriage, it's only Harry to blame. So same, same, same with William. If anything happens with him and Kate, it's only yourself to blame. He wasn't forced to marry her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in this case, they definitely portray that very well mm-hmm. with the whole them being pressed to do it. Of course, this is now season four, but it's um, yeah, yeah. it's the same thing. And you can see the uh, the ground being laid already in season three. And mm-hmm. Charles is kind of because she's not intact and all that. And the way he says it as well is just mm-hmm. soul crushing. And, you know, it just yeah. tears you apart. I've thought about this many times and every time I kind of go through season three, it just makes me feel, I don't know, more and I'm more alive. Mm. (laughs) I almost forget the fact that it's a show and it's just all the elements of it are together in this amazing harmony. And it's it's the events that you and I don't get to see. It's not something that's spoken about 
too much. And it's it's an a beautiful it's almost a beautiful ending to the first half and before the kind of realities of the modern age. Yeah sort of begin. And you even have this uh, Harold Wilson, the great prime minister, and, and he's both of his terms. And it's so sad when he has to leave in, mm. the, in the in the last bit. I think the episode with Ted Heath is the episode I probably like the least from memory. Yeah, because uh, Michael Maloney is great, but I hate him in that role. Also because he was in The Queen Life of a Monarch, about 10 years previously, and he played the fall guy whom they have to blame for leaking the whole Thatcher and the Queen mm. had fallen apart. So he played that role in Life of a Monarch and he had to sort of leave office, whereas in The in the Crown, it's played by a different actor, of course. And it doesn't yeah. help the fact that Michael Maloney and Nicholas Farrell both have been in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. But this is me being super nerdy. I, this is my life. So The Crown is life. Abervan and the Carnarvon episode, which is, I'm not going to try to pronounce it again because I'm going to butcher my Welsh. I'm not at that level yet. Both of them are the highest rated episodes on IMDb. Abervan mm. is 9.3 and the Carnarvon episode is 9.1. I'm sorry, but it's just, it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant season, amazingly well crafted. And I think that to me, it beats every other season. I think season one comes very close because it was the novelty and mm. everything, but because it's the stuff that we don't see everywhere else and it is actually incredibly entertaining. So season three takes the cookie yeah. for me, takes the biscuit, sorry. Mm. We're very grateful to The Crown for the iconic speeches that they write for mainly the Queen. And I've seen it being parodied on TikTok and everything so many times, either people take the audio or they recreate the audio or whatever, but it's a, you know, happened to Queen barely 10 years. Da, 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 da. And then this is season two at the end when she's berating the prime minister because she has this the confederacy of losers or something. And you just go, this is where English language goes to dream. This is beautiful. And season one has a brilliant thing when she says to Philip when they are on tour, just the crown has landed on my head and I say, we go. Rival siblings. So this is, I think you and I talked about it mentioned it a few times in season season three episode i believe two mm, just called margaritology yeah. exactly this bit where philip delivers an amazing speech which basically is if, if you're a royal historian this is i don't know why he came up with it although he did know his uh, royal connections to be fair he did better than elizabeth i think he gives the whole speech about how you always have these siblings one of which is suited to the throne Mm. but is boring and the other one is not suited to the throne but is incredibly exciting and this is the only i think one of the two times or three times in the whole show where we hear about prince eddie mm. which again is a whole other episode from us and that's the one thing i want the last season of the crown to have as their little standalone episode because that was the beginning of the windsors because his younger brother when he took the throne he turned from sax cobra gota to the Windsors, but it had, wouldn't have happened had Prince Eddie not died mm. of, I think it was pneumonia at the age of something like 23. So these kind of, the, the speech about the siblings is, again, the chef's kiss of speeches and mm. sort of the summarizing of royal history. And then somewhere, somewhere down the line, we have William and Harry and you go, yes, Prince Philip, you're a wise man. Talk about history repeating itself again. 
It's funny because we, in real life, recorded an episode with the lovely Catherine Carson. We were talking about the Georgians and their generational curse and the royal family's generational curse is fathers and sons and brothers or siblings. They just don't mix. Maybe we should start having some only children in the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, if they had the fathers and sons all the way down to Victoria and beyond, a little bit beyond, then as soon as you change to Windsors, Mm. you... And again, a little bit before that. So let's your Prince Eddie. So he's kind of a nice little middle between these two issues. Because as soon as you get to Prince Eddie... Then it's the siblings. Mm. Every generation that's close to the crown, so the monarch and their sibling, and you have these problems of one being the bright social butterfly and then the other Mm. one being seen as stout and boring backwater. I don't know. I think probably my brother and I would be seen like that by history if we were in any way royal, but we're not. Yeah, maybe it's um, maybe it is seen more in like normal families. But um, I think the problem with the the royal family, and to be fair, I don't know if this is like a worldwide royal family because Britain is not the only person, uh, the only country in the world that has royalty. But people exactly. forget that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Whoever wears the crown has all the power, and you're going to get sons or daughters or sisters or brothers. They don't really like that. They kind of want that. They want the crown. They want the power. They want the publicity. They want to be the star of the show. It's kind of like in a normal family when you have children, you want mummy's attention. You always get that in families. It's probably not just a royal thing, but it's exacerbated because of the crown and the, the position they're in. Again, it's the season that has that speech. You don't have that speech or equal to that speech anywhere else. It really summarizes those things, but yeah. So the cast. I think this is my favorite thing to talk about. So for me, I'd say I think there's at least one member of the kind of the the core unit that they keep changing. Uh, By the way, also, I know that they announced these cast changes before the show was shot. So they conceived this right from the go. Mm. And I imagine that this is probably why it had never happened before on such a scale, because they they were worried that people wouldn't get on board with the new cast. So you have to have the same, is why always you have the same actors playing the same character from, you know, from Mm. birth to grave, more or less, you know. Mm. Yeah, because that that happened when when I was watching, I mean, this is after The Crown, obviously, but they they did do this in House House of Dragon. House of Dragon. No, House of Dragon. Really? Yeah, because and the stupidest thing is right. So you've got the lead character. She she's a child in the first few. Although they changed it mid season, so she's a child in the first few episodes. And then she has to grow up and have babies and have lots of sex. So then she's older. The first sex, then the babies, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I've been told. I don't know. Yeah, okay. yeah. So she's grown. She gets older. The the king at the time. You see him get older and literally disintegrates then you have prince philip from crown season one matt lovely matt stays the same he's just the same he's he's the brother of the king and he stays the same age he stays hot and lovely and does not age he is dorian gray where the crown you're aging everybody so it makes sense whereas yeah how's the dragon I, i get that they had to make her older and there's another couple of characters that are obviously in the makeholder because they were children at the time. 
It doesn't make sense when all the adults are still kind of staying adults. That's the trope that you see yeah. in most TV shows, most films mm. and everything. Think of, okay, this is a very, probably not the best example, but Margaret Beaufort in The White Queen. Obviously, uh, Elizabeth of York was conceived and now she's of marriageable age. They even aged Elizabeth Woodville by giving her a few gray hairs or whatever. Mm. They even aged your favorite Max Irons because the, the, his death scene yeah. at the age of 43 or whatever was, mm. he he looked, well, not 40, but at least he looked, you know, at least 35. He had a good look. <laughs> he had a good look, yeah. He, they gave him some, you know, whiskers and some yeah. gray whiskers and mm-hmm. all that. So you could see that he was older. They put weight on him as well. Middle East. Yes, there we go. Yeah. So he he still looked attractive, obviously, but still. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> 1% less attractive was Margaret Beaufort. She said absolutely the same from the early 60s, 1460s, to the mid 80s. So 25 years about that, the story takes place. Even if you start in mid 60s, still the same thing. Yeah. She did, they didn't even try to put anything on her and you think well you know why that's because she did a lot of praying so she was praying for her youth I'm kidding uh, but and what's, what's worse about that right is the fact that you see her at the beginning in Henry the future Henry the seventh he, he's a young lad and we know that she had him at 13 so she would have been still super young she would have been a teenager when this boy's like three or four or five or whatever it was at the first couple of scenes because they had a couple of boys playing him as well they had a yes, very very young older. one yeah and, and then he, he had i'm henry tudor so and then of course he's even more aged after that but yeah you yeah. had at least three actors playing mm-hmm. him yeah exactly so she, and, and you do you change a lot from your teenage years to your 20s to your 30s i mean you do change a lot yeah. so <laughs> We have photos to prove it, but not out of Margaret Beaufort, obviously. <laughs> Maybe we need to pray more. I think, yeah, probably that, that's the... So they didn't want to rely on prayer in the crown. So uh, they decided to get new yeah. actors from... That's the thing. And this is why I'm not... I can't believe that some people still to this day are surprised that they, the cast is changing. And they always think, oh, but did they, they replaced this actor. They didn't replace them. They had a, a contract. So you come on, you play this character from this age to this age and these episodes... And it's not like they're getting kicked out either. They're, it's a pretty good role to have. And I remember Claire Foy saying in an interview after The Crown, she said, obviously, you know, it's all respectful, but she was happy to no longer have that role because, mm. you know, if you're playing someone for eight months in a row or whatever, you don't want to be playing them, you know, forever. It's not Grey's mm. Anatomy again. So you kind of, you want to be doing other things. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Plus, I really am happy that they decided to not go for the wigs, not go for the yeah. for all that crap. Because you can convince people that this is a, the same character. And I'm glad that they mm-hmm. decided to, 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 to go for it because there were so many, up until I think it last year, I was getting comments. Oh, but I can't believe that, you know, they couldn't just let Claire Foy play her, you know, into the old age. They could have just done with the wigs and things. Yeah. And I agree with Peter Morgan when he says, yes, but you can't pin or wig someone to have a uh, life experience because you have different life experiences and you need to be able to portray them. No, definitely, because there is so much life experience in the crown that you see and you can't really have like a, a young actress portray that as well, I don't think. You need them to look like they have been through shit. It's interesting to kind of think that Claire Foy, what age would she be now? I think sort of 40 so she probably would be just okay for the role of the season three and four queen now. No, no but no. back when she was, you know, fresh faced and 
I want to say relative unknown and relative is a strong word because she had been in things and mm. she was in things like Little Dorrit and even, of course, famously, she was Anne Boleyn in Wolf Hall. Yeah. Yeah. She had been in front of us before, but this, of course, role took her to the stratosphere. And beyond. And beyond, yeah. So she was kind of relatively fresh faced, but she was definitely young enough to, to portray that. And even then they brought her back in season four hmm. for the speech she did when she turned 21. Yeah. And this is something that I had a thing to say about because technically you have another actress who's playing Elizabeth in flashbacks. Hmm. In season one, in season two, in season three, she's there and she's playing. Yeah. And she's doing a very, very, very good job. And by the time I think they were filming South Africa speech, she mm. probably would have been the right age to, to mm. play that. She still would be kind of in the same range of young Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. The young teenager, innocent, etc. But they got Claire Foy, who at that time, I think it was probably in her late 30s. But I understand why, because Claire Foy is incredibly famous and she had played her in the first two seasons. So yeah. There was a lot more weight and yeah. um, gravitas behind the Claire Foy choice for that speech. Hmm. But I think the if you if you discounted all that, I think it should have gone to the to that young actress whose name escapes me, but I will make it up to her. I promise I will name her. I will name her in the post. And of course, Claire Foy won an Emmy for it. So that's. Hmm another Amy for the show and it's you can look at it from different perspectives but I mm. definitely think that the young girl would have been of the more appropriate age to yeah. play that in terms of cast so it's funny you mentioned Prince Philip mm. Matt Smith and you know how I feel about Matt Smith That's, I don't care I love him <laughs> No, I'm happy that you love him, but in every kind of core lineup of people they had to change, there's always one that I don't agree with. Mm. And in season one, that definitely, I mean, apart from Jared Harris, who I don't think was, he didn't look like George VI. And I know mm. that they, they always said, oh, it's not about, you know, what a person, it's not, it's not the um, impersonation or whatever. But at the same time, they did get... 99% of characters looking like their historical counterparts. So I don't buy that, the whole, this is not an impersonation show. But yeah, Jared Harris kind of, he played him well, but he didn't look like George VI, which is fine. But for the role of Prince Philip, it was a giant, giant no. He didn't look like him. He didn't move like him. He didn't portray him in the masculine sense. I Honestly, if it, Doctor Who didn't exist and he wasn't in it, I don't even know why they hired him and I know that he was a lot more famous than Claire Foy when the whole show started and he was paid a lot more money and everything. But honestly, I'm watching that show. I had never seen him in anything else before. And I'm just thinking how wrong he was for that. And I know that they had chemistry. Mm. So I do give credit to that so much so that then they did a play together. And I think that then the play went to Broadway. So they do have chemistry together. If we're doing dream casting, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go with Max Irons. <laughs> If we're if we're dreaming, seasons five and six, again, Prince Philip, although we're gonna discuss it in a different episode as well. I was very excited for Jonathan Price mm. and I was gutted when that did not deliver mm. whatsoever. No. And again, the obvious choice for me in seasons five and six for Prince Philip would have been 
Jeremy Irons because it's, <laughs> it's the same height. At least you need to be tall, you need to mm. be lean, you need to move in a certain way, etc. So I think yes, in terms of if I could chime in on the casting, I would have said Max Irons for Prince Philip seasons one and two, and then his daddy Scar or Henry the Fourth, whichever one you want to look at it, um, seasons five and six. So yeah, that's season one. Did you think there was anything wrong with the first installment casting? Obviously, you're pro Matt Smith. I'm pro Matt Smith. But for I, that role, do you think he's good for that role? I actually do think he's good for that role because what I liked about him, I mean, looks-wise, he's not right, okay. But if we're going with the essence of the character, he's very good at playing a playboy and he's very good at... I think I think Matt Smith, he is kind of a, an underrated actor because I, and I do this all the time with Matt Smith. I don't even know why I do this all the time with Matt Smith. Every time he's put in a role, I go, shit, he'll be shit. He can't do that. There's no way he can do that. I did this with Doctor Who. I'm a big Doctor Who fan because my son's into Doctor Who. And I was a big, huge David Tennant fan. Huge, huge. He is amazing. He will. He is my Doctor Who, right? Nothing, nobody will ever compare to David Tennant, right? There's just no, nobody's going to do it better. But then Matt Smith came along and I was actually all right, but he was all right. He was different. Sure, but he made the role his own and I liked him uh, when he was cast in the House of Dragon. I went, away you go. No, he was just Prince Philip, for Christ's sake. He's not going to do it because I had read the book, so I knew what he was like. Not going to do this role justice. The man didn't need to speak. And anybody who's watched House of Dragon knows he did not need to speak. He just looked. And when you are an actor and you don't need to speak and you are like the star of the show, by not speaking. I mean, that's next level acting. I just thought it was brilliant. I think he he embodied Prince Philip for me, 100%. He gave that um, youthful, because let's face it, we all know Prince Philip now as a walking corpse. He has been for a few years until he died. So he embodied that. He just gave it, gave him life back. He he gave him the, the sleeping beauty, Prince Philip back. Do you know what I mean? It gave us like that back. When will I see you? Tomorrow, someday. <laughs> no, I, I, see, I, I know what you mean. And because I w- had watched the Royal House of Windsor on Netflix when mm. it was still on there. And by the way, yes, guys, the best documentary about the Windsors is called the Royal House of Windsor. So I think mm. a six parter. Check your Prime. Check your Amazon, YouTube, whatever. That's w- what I think about when I think Prince Philip. Not as a walking corpse, yes, because that was mm-hmm. did enough sort of damage to his visual image, visual yeah. image. But from those documentaries, you watch it and you see just how, pardon me for vulgar language, how hot he was. Mm. And then they call him also domesticated James Bond. And you go, yes, that's yeah. very nice. Yeah. But uh, to me, I I don't think Matt Smith had the heart. He, he didn't bring heart into the role. Mm that to me kind of Prince Philip is very cold seasons one and two. He doesn't have that something. I don't know. But for Matt Smith to add to his cause, I will add that I absolutely adored his performance in, do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're going to say. Pride, Prejudice and Zombies. He was amazing as Mr. Collins, Pastor Collins in Pride, Prejudice and Zombies with Lily James as Elizabeth Bennet. He mm. was phenomenal. The comedic timing, the awkwardness, the ridiculous of his character. He yeah. took that role and he literally did unbelievable things to it in a very good way. Literally, the whole film is worth watching for so many reasons. And one of them, and this is a rare thing for me to say, apologies, Matt Smith, very wonderful person. But one of those reasons is to watch this film 
is Matt Smith as mm. Pastor Collins. He's the only Mr. Collins I would get on board with. <laughs> Even though I don't think he had the, the chemistry with Ashling Loftus, who played uh charlotte lucas i don't think they even had a scene together if uh, or at least they weren't sort of paired together much yeah but as actually yes exactly he he's the one that has that weird charisma in the very weird i'm a nerd and i say Mm -hmm. inappropriate things all the time kind of way but yeah you would get on board with him and you definitely would yeah Yeah. i was all right with him not being in um, that many I can't even remember him being in the scene with Charlotte, but because they didn't have chemistry. I know. That I know, made I sense. Know. Like, I, I didn't need them to have chemistry. That was all right. So that's, yes, yeah, so that's season one. So we're happy with Elizabeth, of course. I love although... Clairefoy. I actually love Clairefoy. And do you, But I will say, do you know who my favourite cast member of season one is? Right. It's you. Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. <laughs> season one favourite cast member for Gemma. Apart from Matt Smith. Apart from Matt Smith, apart from yeah, I was gonna say I yeah, like him, but he's not my favorite. We've just we've just covered that. Yeah, season one is it one of the main core? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Margaret. Yep, She's she beautiful. is perfection. Because, Princess Margaret. Yeah, yeah, because I. I know I said earlier I'm not a big Windsor fan, but I've always loved Princess Margaret. She's just so beautiful. She's just she's timeless, classic. And then the fact that she's a pure rebel. I love a rebel royal. But again, <laughs> sibling rivalry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, re- the rebel's always... Well, actually, take that back. The rebel is usually the funnest one when it came to Margaret, definitely. So and I think Vanessa was, was perfect for that role. Yeah, yeah. All of them of the main core. We've just mm. covered the exceptions. I think they're absolutely just perfection and i even adore jeremy northam mm-hmm. as anthony eden despite him being a tory as an anthony eden i don't know where jeremy northam stands on politics but yeah i absolutely just adore that cast and yeah the only ones that would kind of change is jared harris because mm. he looked nothing like george the six even colin first looked slightly <laughs> more so but if we're but he's not there much that's the thing you mm. you mind him and then he dies so you don't no. you don't get to him maybe that's no. why he died i don't know but yeah in terms of casting it was just pure perfection with the the special effects in season one i mean just the whole production value is confection even not just perfection but it's yeah. confection just before we go into season two Queen Mary was amazing. Queen Mary oh God, looked yes. like Queen Mary. She yes. embodied Queen Mary. She was fantastic. She really was fantastic. That that was really good casting. All right, okay, I might change my mind. I think she was the best casting. <laughs> Again, she dies. <laughs> she dies. Very fast. Very fast. Yes, yes. And it's that kind of, they wanted to portray her, I think, as a sort of Victorian shadow or something, mm-hmm. or a sort of Victorian looking lady. And she was, and you kind of think, you stop and you think the fact that most people on The Crown season one, and most people, but a lot of people were born mm-hmm. in Victorian era yeah or at least i don't know at least half Edwardian, of them yeah maybe Edwardian. yeah victorian edwardian era still you had a lot of victorians in there because mm. queen mary definitely saw victoria and <laughs> had a lot of contact with victoria and in fact she was born i think with her present i'm not sure but yeah so she was definitely she was chosen mm-hmm. as the wife for the aforementioned prince eddie yeah. And that's, again, its own episode, separate, but still. And she she was selected as such. Mm. But then he died and she went to his younger brother, the future George V, Mm. the beginner, the the begetter of the Windsors. Also, Winston Churchill himself. Rex Factor made this connection, which I absolutely adore. They said on their podcast last year, after the Queen, after the late Queen died, they said that the first prime minister 
of Elizabeth II was born in 1870s and the last prime minister of Elizabeth II was born in 1970s. So it's a hundred years, a whole century between the births of the, her first and last prime minister. Mm. You know, Churchill obviously is the first prime minister and she's like, great, this is going to be great. She had the last prime minister and she's like, right, I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, Liz, you can't have two Liz's. And they will implode. The world will implode. The world will implode. The world did. Yeah. I love mm. that meme right after she died and that had Rishi Sunak greeting King Charles and he said, I'm here replacing Liz. So am I. So the new installment, <laughs> cast wise, what do we think? Who was miscast? Spill the beans. Oh, God. I adore Tobias. I adore him. He, he's life. That man is just yes. perfection. Perfection. I don't know if it was a great Prince Philip, though. <gasps> oh. He was all right, but I think they could, I think they've, they've kind of done Prince Philip. <laughs> He was he was all right. See, that's that's exactly the opposite for me. I think he was out of all Prince Philips that we've had, so the three in installments, oh, three. not including the the flashback. But yes, mm. okay, let's include flashback again. So the flashback Prince Philip looked like Prince Philip, and he was flashbacking Matt Smith as Prince Philip, who looked nothing like Prince Philip. So that's again <laughs> another point against Matt Smith. So yeah, Tobias Menzies absolutely is life as. <laughs> Prince Philip, to me, he was the the essence of him. He played that all the human characteristics that you, you mm. can, all the colors, all the good, all the bad, everything. And that sexual charisma that I imagine the real Prince Philip also had back in the day. He definitely has that. I'm not going to lie about that. Tobias Menzies yep. brought in his pains. Yeah. Yep. When he says to the, to the footman, eyes left in the first episode, you go, oh my God. <laughs> we need a mop here, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I's like, oh my God, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It, it does, it does bring that to the role for once. Because um, uh, as much as I love Matt Smith as an actor, he he doesn't really do it for me to be honest. <laughs> See, this is why I'm surprised that you like him as Prince Philip. I, I like Prince him because... Philip had that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just thought it was like his personality wise, he brought it. Likewise, he doesn't bring it. He's not. He's not my jam. But Tobias brings the sexual sex factor for him. Yes, <laughs> this is what I'm trying to get to exactly. So <laughs> he brings. He it's brings. a good season. It's a. It's a good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> two good seasons, and that season in particular yeah. was just yes, exactly. It's the chef's kiss for me of castings because he brings. That which I imagine the real Prince Philip had, and they had that mm -hmm. sort of chemistry with him and Olivia. That I imagine this is what the real chemistry between the late Queen and Prince Philip was. This is why it's a perfection. Obviously, Olivia Coleman as the Queen was brilliant, and mm -hmm. I defy anyone who says that she was too whatever for the role because, oh, it's you know, she doesn't speak enough, she doesn't that, and she's you know, frowning. That's what the Queen, yeah. Did. <laughs> she was fresh from winning the Oscar for another queen, Regnant, by the way. Mm. And very few people know, remember this, but she also played the queen mother in a, I think it was 20, early 10s or something. She was in a film called Hyde Park on Hudson, where the late queen mother and George VI traveled to America to meet with, I think, the late president FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt was, I think, played by Olivia Williams or something. So 
So yeah, it was a very little known film. And Bill Murray is FDR. No. So she was Queen Mother and she was talking about the little bit at home and what have you. And George VI was played by stuttering Samuel West, who is the little villain from the first episode of season three, Anthony Blunt. And we have to watch that. What is that called again? Kite Park on Hudson. So mm. she played Queen's Regnant. She played Queen's... Uh, She's the new Helen is the new Helen Mirren, exactly. You die, you need to say that you were played by Olivia Colman. I, yeah. don't, I don't mind that at all. Uh, so yeah, Olivia Colman, excellent choice. Mm. And the problem I always had was Helena Bonham Carter. I knew you were going to come from my girl. Do not come from my girl. I love her. <laughs> I love her. And do you know what? I remember watching... Oh, I don't know, some TV show. I think it might have been Graham Norton. And she was on that and she was talking about the casting. She was talking about getting the role and she, she'd she met Princess Margaret. Like she's actually met her, she knew her. And she had said that um, one of her friends was, was like a psychic or something. And she was telling oh, yeah. the story. Yeah, she was telling the story of how Princess Margaret came to the psychic and said that she liked her for the role and she thought she was better than the other one that was supposed to get the role. Which who she didn't say, by the way. She didn't say who the other one was. Princess Margaret says she was good, so that's fine. Not that I believe in psychics or anything like that, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I like her because Princess Margaret, by then, she was in a wild girl era. And don't get me wrong, Helena Bonham Carter can, because I love her in everything else. Yeah. Jane Grey, you're... Mrs. Lovett, Anne Boleyn even she was. Yeah. And obviously she played a version of Queen Elizabeth I in um, Alice in Wonderland and everything. So she she's knows... Another, she's another one that plays queens after queens. Exactly. I think, yeah, for one of my uni essays, I had to list one time the number of queens she did and it was just... Yeah. And then for a quiz uh, during COVID as well. Yeah, and it was just endless. I had to Google so much more than I thought I had to Google. But yeah, she played a lot of royalty. She does the wild girl very well. And obviously, no, no matter what I say anywhere at any time, it's not going to change the fact that she was cast and filmed it and they're not going to go back and... It's done. You know, yeah, it's done. It's a fait accompli. For me personally, she doesn't look like Vanessa Kirby. She doesn't look mm -hmm. like Leslie Manville, who played her later. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I usually have this one person that I, one casting that I don't agree with from the main core mm. group and this is probably it for season three because it's perfect in every other way the thing about Princess Margaret is she was stunningly beautiful like even more beautiful than the Queen she oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like oh she was just perfection old Hollywood perfection but as they say don't do drugs ladies and gentlemen she did go downhill very very fast because of her wild lifestyle she aged much faster than the queen because of her lifestyle choices she died much faster than the queen she died well. much faster than the queen because of her lifestyle choices okay from that perspective it actually makes a lot of sense yeah okay yeah. Yeah. you know what I changed my mind <laughs> Helena we're good you're fine you're fine you're fine you're fine if I had to, again, offer my own alternative casting, I would say mm. Olivia Williams, who went on to play Camilla. I think she would have been amazing as Princess Margaret in, in that installment. Mm. And then Helena Bonham Carter would have been fantastic as Camilla in seasons five and six. That's how I would swap them. No, I don't, I don't see her as Camilla. Think about it. No, she's too wild. <laughs> but Camilla, yeah. even though she had the fear and everything else, Camilla's quite vanilla. This is this is what we need to bring to the people because <laughs> yeah. exactly because she, she was too vanilla. Diana yeah. was also too vanilla, but they were yeah. very different vanilla. 
So refined was having a bottom carter. Okay, yes, from that perspective, that's a very good point. Yeah, actually, she fits the role much better. Amazing Charles. We have an amazing Camilla. And then and then they keep yeah. the same Winston Churchill. And yeah, it kind of makes a little connection because that's, again, why I love the season three and the beginning of season three in particular, because you have those little when they're doing the new installment, mm. they have to do these little kind of threads to show this is still the same show. Even though we know it's yeah. the same show. We yeah. know what we clicked on. We know what we've read. This is, even if they don't have the crown, the, the intro, we still know what we're watching. We don't need mm. to be reminded of it. It's nice to have those little narrative threads and the fact that they brought in the same Winston Churchill, John Lithgow. Mm. I think that was a little cherry on top of the cake. Yeah, yeah Josh O'Connor as... Charles was he was fantastic fantastic choice and I especially love the narrative the storylines that he has in season three as Charles being victimized by the family mm. and then Wallace Simpson also kind of talks to him about that and it's beautiful and again I repeat myself because it's not something that we see covered much mm. when it comes to royal drama when it comes to the Windsors because yes we had what was it 10 years ago we had a lot of films like King's Speech like W.E. that cover the abdication hmm. none of them cover what happened after hmm. almost none of them i think there's a scene maybe in we but not really kind of digging deep into it in the crown sort of seasons all of them really especially three it shows what happens afterwards and how it happens and it's just beautiful I'm always kind of rooting for the underdog the misunderstood <laughs> which are the third <laughs> charles the first <laughs> I'm very much on board with the Duke of Windsor and his story because it's not always told the right way and the right things are brought to the surface. The only thing I would add is also the fact that obviously the show has the budget to portray the majesty of mm. the crown, literally the majesty to portray her majesty and his majesty now, but also the filming locations. And that's one of my favorite things, as we said, with Carnarvon, that it was shot in the actual Carnarvon, but then... You have, same as Bridgerton, Netflix doesn't leave Greenwich alone. They've shot every corner of Old Royal Naval College, and including the, the Painted Hall, where you have, I think, season three, you have the um, wedding anniversary dinner or something. So that was shot in Painted Hall. But yeah. also around it, it's just shot everywhere. And including, yes, season three, there are a lot of them with um, Mountbatten. Hmm. It's everywhere. And then you watch Bridgerton and you see the same locations, just slightly dressed up. And then they try to redress them for a different scene in a different season. And you go, no, it's still not. It's still Greenwich. It's still Old Royal Naval College. I know exactly where this, 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 and this, and this was filmed. <laughs> if you want to feel the crown or Bridgerton or Thor 2 <laughs> or Le Mis, or I have to mention, yes, Napoleon. Um, oh, I can't believe you even mentioned that. I know. I have to because it's big. But then <laughs> when I was writing about Old Royal Naval College for one of my quizzes for years, uh, what was it, during lockdown, I came to the conclusion that it's easier to list the films that weren't <laughs> shot there than the mm. ones that were. Mm. And I think the films I came up with that were not shot there was something like The Other Bullying Girl with Nazi uh, Portman mm. and potentially Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> Although both are debatable because... But even for weddings and a funeral, one of the scenes was shot there. Mm. 
shot in old Royal Naval College. So yeah, it's it's in everything. And the chapel, actually, one of the least known locations in there, there's a little chapel, which is incredibly beautiful. And that's, I believe, where they shot Camilla's wedding. First mm, wedding? First one, yeah. Yeah. Princess Anne. Yes. Oh, my God. We that forgot. It's amazing. Yes. Amazing. Sorry, Princess Anne. Erin Doherty. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you're fantastic. We love you to death. She is amazing. Amazing. Beautiful. Amazing. Yes. With the uh, stiff upper lip and the mm-hmm. mannerisms and mm-hmm. everything. And that scene when she's introduced and he's darling, darling. That was just <laughs> phenomenal. She is one of my favorite royals to be fair. So when I watched her, yeah, you're, you're it. You are it. That's the way I envision her being. She's the most down to earth royal. She doesn't apologize and she just says it like it is. And I love that. She likes lighthouses, so what, what more do you want? She likes lighthouses. Exactly. I <laughs> I cannot stress how much that is appealing <laughs> in a human to me. Yes, exactly. She's mm-hmm. into lighthouses and we are into lighthouses. Yep. Everything that that entails. Exactly. Yeah. She yep. and we're gonna cover this next time the casting in the last installment of her, because again, Claudia Williams is just I keep saying it, but it's true. And they did such a good job of casting some of the people in the last installment. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. Claudia Williams as Princess Anne and before that Erin Doherty, top, 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 top tier of casting. Yeah. And Absolutely she, beautiful. She's again like because you think of Princess Anne the way Princess Anne is now, and she she was so beautiful when she was younger. So beautiful. Her on her wedding day, oh she's her and Princess Margaret's wedding dresses are the, the two of my favourites. Beautiful, they're just under understated, but their beauty brings it out kind of a thing. And yeah. that, I mean, that's what you want out of a royal wedding gown. You um, wear the dress, the dress does not wear you. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Oh, she was just fantastic. And she brought that that kind of young energy back into Anne. Although I, don't, I think Anne kind of does still have a, lot, a young energy about her, but um, she just reminded you she was young because, again, we think of the Queen as... The way the Queen's always been, she's always been an old lady in her lifetimes. Prince Philip's always been an old man in her lifetimes. Princess Anne's older than my dad, I think. So, (laughs) (laughs) But one story that didn't make it into the crown, but is, I understand why. Mm. But also the the scene where she, someone is trying to kidnap her and she is standing up. Yes, yeah, that would have been fantastic. But they go through the, you know, the the line Mm -hmm. of succession. But this is a fantastic example of why the members of the royal family, especially the, again, there there are arguments for and against, but the the true, true prince and princess, you can really see the upbringing in mm. the, the classiness that they bring, mm. especially in these unpredicted circumstances, because she didn't go the <laughs> fucking basic bitch attitude to it. She yeah. was, she, she brought in that sort of stealth. She brought mm-hmm. in the, again, class. Yes, yeah, she, she brought in that, the thing that they're trained for. Yep. You think, why are they, you know, mm. restricted in some ways or whatever? But this is the great example of that. Mm. Someone started to kidnap her and they lost. They didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she won. And she won because of her upbringing and because of the way she was raised and all of the things that made her a princess and princess royal at that. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the big hats off. And you can see it. And I started with William actually a few months ago. Again, it's on a very different level, but kind of the same sort of the same topic. Mm. When Catherine, I don't know, stumbled or something, and then the way he rushed to to help her. And you go, yes, 
see, this is like when you're caught off guard, when you're not really, uh, this is not rehearsed, this is not theater, yeah. whatever. Yeah. The yeah. way that you behave, the way mm-hmm. that you behave, this is what makes you royal. This is what mm. makes you you. This is why we are fascinated with them and we want to emulate them. This brings us to the end of our review of The Crown seasons one to three. So the first half of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque podcast on Instagram. And we have an account on the X of the Twitter where we are at Baroque podcast. And if you'd like to read our blog and find out more, please visit the website ifitaintbaroque.art. If you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, and I have three at the moment, one about the medieval and Tudor monarchs, one about the Georgian and Windsor monarchs, and one about naughty London in Southwark, please join me. The website is reignoflondon.com and there will be links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much and see you next time.